Yeah, I mean, community is invaluable, right? And it's something that is a generational focus for folks staying together, solving their own issues, getting through any kind of disagreement, and also really building together. But is community dying? As a 30-something in a big city, the idea of community actually seems sort of vague and unreachable to me sometimes. I have my work community, but that's a group of people scattered across the country because they work remote. In fact, most of the communities I've considered myself to be part of throughout my life were pretty much ready-made for me. My classmates, my coworkers, kids I met during ballet class or figure skating. I, I haven't been to a figure skating class in over a decade, so that group has kind of dropped off. Honestly, I would love to have a better connection with community, but I get overwhelmed thinking about how to start. And this seems to be a problem that's bigger than just me right now. America is in the midst of a quote-unquote loneliness epidemic. That's according to an advisory issued earlier this year by U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. He said that being lonely is more than just a bad feeling. It can have a profound impact on physical health, the economy, and more. We can't ignore the fact that our approaches to community are changing. They have for every generation. But how can we make sure that we don't change so much that we lose community altogether? I'm Lauren Berry, and this is It's Generational. On this episode, we're talking about community with four great guests. Baby boomer journalist Dorothy Tucker, president of the National Association of Black Journalists. Gen X journalist Hugo Balta, former president of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. Millennial comedian and writer Aparna Nanshirla, author of the upcoming book Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome, and Kim Syra, a Gen Z content creator focused on inner healing and community care. What does community mean to you? I know it's a big question, but go for it. I'll start. You know, community for me starts with my family, um, the people that are that that have always been there, right? So my parents, my, my siblings, my extended family of aunts and uncles, they're the first community that I met. And uh, as I mentioned before, um, were very instrumental in shaping who I am personally and professionally and continue to do so. So they, they have had the highest influence um, uh, to who I am. Secondly, community is how I self-identify. So I self-identify as a Peruvian American. Um, even though I was born in the United States, I very much feel akin to my Peruvian roots and uh, was very fortunate to live in Peru uh, when I was younger and, and, and as is commonplace with the children of immigrants, would spend summers in Peru and nine months out of the year in the United States getting my formal education. And so, I self-identify with 100% being with Peru and 100% and proud to be an American citizen. And then finally, I would say community also means the, that the extension, right? Because even though if you were to ask me, how do I self-identify as Peruvian American, but I'm also, I recognize and I'm very proud of being part of a larger group that in the United States is is labeled as Hispanic and Latino, and there are certainly differences in that. It's interesting. I always feel like I have kind of an ambivalent reaction to the word, even if I don't like that I do. I think, especially as an adult and someone who recently entered their 40s, like I feel like sometimes it's hard to pin down where exactly I'm getting a source of community from. Sometimes I feel like I'm 
not grounded in certain ways. Like I'm part of the comedy community, which is work oriented, but it's, it's a little bit of a paradox because it often feels like a lot of people are gravitate towards comedy because they kind of feel like outsiders in some way, or they sort of are outside the box type. So it's kind of like the community that comes together is kind of bonded by their outsiderness. So sometimes it feels hard to all feel like we're all on the same page all the time. Though I do think the nice thing about being in an artistic community is you do have a sort of shorthand for connecting with other people and a lot of your goals line up and just like your way of connecting is kind of, there's already a foundation for it. Um, But then larger community wise, like I'm South Asian American and I do think I grew up like my parents emigrated here in the late seventies from India. And I do think I grew up in sort of a wave of being an immigrant kid where there was a lot of emphasis, at least in the white suburbs where I grew up on assimilation. So I think there was a weird toggling between like being a South Asian kid and being wanting to be more adjacent to whiteness, maybe in some ways and seeing that as beneficial. So I think I'm still kind of learning to reclaim some of those parts of like being part of the South Asian community. And what does that mean for me, even if I maybe don't feel like I fit in as seamlessly as maybe other people do. So I feel like I'm constantly kind of like trying to sense where my community is and like where I feel like I can strengthen it. Yeah. And I agree with, with, you know, what everyone had said here. And I think for me, when I think of community, really, um, I think of being of service. Um, and so just based off of um, just my identity and my experiences, immigrating from the Philippines, always feeling like I'm not Filipino enough to be like a mainland Filipino. And I'm also not American enough, a.k.a. white supremacy, like assimilating to whiteness enough. So like, where do I stand as an immigrant whose parents can't speak English? Um, and I feel like that in between has made me feel really angry for most of my life. Um, it's made me feel like there's this unbelonging, but I definitely feel like how I've been able to overcome a lot of that is through being of service to community. Research has shown that in-person socialization in general is important for mental health, but community has an even deeper importance. It can help shape people's lives, open up opportunities for them, and bring them new experiences. In Chicago, Nathaniel Vietz Van Leer, the director of engagement and outreach at the My Block, My Hood, My City organization, has dedicated most of his life to working with community. Yeah, I've been a youth worker my entire life. Uh, even when I was a young person, I was doing uh, youth development work with my peers or helping to lead small organizations that would would cater to young populations, especially uh, youth of color in urban environments. I was someone who was invested in by many adults, right? I also grew up low income in the city, uh, kept having to move because my neighborhoods kept getting gentrified and the landlord would kick us out because they're selling the house to make it a new condo or a new um uh, one family home, right? So we would just keep moving across the city and trying to find spaces that would welcome uh, a mother with three kids, which um, if you don't know in urban settings, they're often the ones people will see the application and be like, I don't want that. Probably can't afford the rent. The kids are going to be messy. While I was working on this episode, I ran across a thread from one of my favorite tweeters, a writer and sociologist who is currently a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School. Her name is Tressie McMillan Cotton. It was about generations taking over the reins of organizing family parties. 
She reminded people that Gen X, her generation, is actually much smaller than the baby boom and can't really be expected to take over for them when it comes to organizing. And while there may be more millennials than Gen Xers, I totally get what Aparna was saying about being ambivalent to the idea of community. That seems to be sort of a trait in our generation based off my anecdotal evidence. I asked Vietz Van Leer about how different generations approached community. Um, I think it's something that's changed generationally too. You know, if we think about uh, my grandparents, they knew everyone in their town, right? They knew everyone down the street. Uh, children would play everywhere. And then generally there was an idea that there would be an adult looking after them somewhere. Um, and then I think my parents' generation, it started to be like, okay, uh, who do I know in my building? Who do I maybe know right next door? Um, and then honestly, with my generation, I know folks who live in apartment complexes in Chicago. They don't know any of their neighbors, right? They might know their name. They might ask them for favors, but they're not letting them into their space. Certainly aren't letting their children play outside anymore, right? Um, and I think the uh, important question to begin asking is, has the world changed? Or has our perception of our community and our perception of safety changed? Right? I think our circle of who we like and who we feel safe around is growing smaller and smaller. Um, and so in that regard, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, kind of segregation, a lot of um, more reliance on police, more reliance on other kinds of institutions to kind of corral and control people because we don't feel like our community um, is safe anymore in some ways. Um, so I would define community as the folks that you feel can be welcomed into your home, the people who you feel um, have your back, those you can rely on, those you share a culture with often, but sometimes culture is not as important as the values or the missions that's driving you. I think those kinds of forces are who we are trying to grow with and then and spiritually, physically, mentally, and all those ways that allow us to thrive. Um, and so when I think about what the word community means, I think nothing happens in a silo and nothing happens in a vacuum. And when you are of service to others, you can tend to restoration and you can tend to um, community building and you could see a world where, you know, folks like us not only deserve to just exist, but take up space and have that show up, hopefully, you know, in all these systemic changes that, you know, this country needs, I think. It's interesting to me, uh, you know, I listen to you and I find myself wondering, which is worse, to feel like you don't belong or as an African-American to feel like to be the target of hate, you know, to not, to, to feel like we don't want you here, you know? And I, and I sometimes when I, and when I hear other minority groups, you know, speak, uh, it, it is a reminder of just others going through something similar, but yet we still really kind of different, you know, I mean, you know, African-Americans face that we don't want you, whereas an Asian, yours comes from a, where do I belong, you know, where, and, but I think both groups would like to just plain be seen and be treated fairly uh, to have that opportunity. So it's, it, it, do you ever think about that? Yeah, I thought about that. I think about that a lot. And when I think about specifically the Asian American experience as well, and also adding to the fact that we're not a monolith, right? So like a lot of tensions that I've had in my community as a Filipino, but heads with East Asians. So Chinese, Japanese, um, Korean people. So there's so much within our own Asian diaspora. But when I think about the American white supremacist view on how Black Americans and 
Asians, primarily like East Asians have clashed, right? I I think about that and how we can, this is going to sound in the most informal way, but redirecting that energy to point into the white supremacist culture that has pitted us against each other for so long, like the model minority myth. Basically, it's just, it's it's so inequitable. And I think just that alone, and I love what you mentioned about which is worse do we who belongs and you know who you know you're hated or and it's interesting because when i look at the root of all of that cause it's it's the genocide it's the inequity that this country has created from the beginning to just pit so many of us against each other um that sounded really informal and i wish that sounded smarter coming out of my mouth but that's (laughs) the feeling that landed (laughs) Oh, I was just going to add to what Kim said, where I do feel like, um, I don't know if anyone is familiar with uh, minor feelings that Kathy Park Hong wrote, uh, that is sort of exploring Asian Americans as, as a racial and ethnic group, and just how it is such a clumping together of like different experiences that like, it's some, like, in some ways, we haven't really patched together a clear identity of like, both what we want or like how we want other people to see us, but it's kind of because it's kind of become an amorphous blob. And like, for example, Indian Americans have become some of the highest wage earners in the country, but then there's like several Asian groups living below the poverty line. And we're all supposed to be on the same page somehow and working towards the same things. Like it's not quite fair in a larger lens. I just wanted to add, you know, one of the things that Kim said about not feeling Asian enough, I think is is a common feeling. Uh, I certainly have felt that way where despite how I see myself and project myself, even though both my parents are Peruvian, when I would go to Peru, even now, you know, I'm, I'm the egringuito, the uh, you're not Peruvian, you weren't born here. And then when I'm here, well, I'm not American enough because my name is pronounced differently. My parents speak a different language. We eat different food. Growing up, that was very difficult because as a kid, you always want to be like everybody else. And that was a very pivotal moment that my mother um, at that moment said, it's actually, it's a superpower. I, I, like any kid, right? I was into superheroes. It's a superpower to speak two languages. It's a superpower to be able to understand two different cultures. And that changed everything for me because at that moment, I needed to hear that if not, I would have rejected um, my, my, my roots um, because it, it, in this country, to your point of white supremacy, if you're not white, you're the other. And it is by design that because of white supremacy that those people do not want us to work together. You know, for me, I'm 60 plus, so... I am definitely, I'm, the, I'm beyond the boomer generation, or I guess we're still boomers, I don't know. I grew up during the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, I, 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 was, I was 12 years old when Martin Luther King was, was murdered. And, you know, I remember all of that. Uh, you know, when you're a child, you don't really see and understand the, the racist policies that you live under because you're a child. But, you know, as you become educated and you read about it and you read about Jim Crow, to me, I sometimes feel like we're just living a second Jim Crow, you know, and it is, it is depressing 
is really depressing. You know, the fight to keep critical race theory, the, the fight to, you know, revisit uh, history, uh, to keep it out of the schools, to, um, as you said, Hugo, to the redistricting lines, the blatant talk to just change the, the voting laws, uh, you know, to disenfranchise uh, minorities and especially, you know, Black Americans. You know, I mean, the, the list is long. And I think uh, white supremacists, white supremacists, literally, I, I, you know, I, I think they sit and they plan and plot for now and, and for generations to come. Dorothy makes a great point. It highlights how community isn't always just an optional thing or a recreational thing. It can be necessary to keep people safe and to protect their access to resources at times when mainstream society neglects to or actively tries to alienate certain groups from them. That's what My Block, My Hood, My City aims to do with its community efforts. So our mainline program, the Explorers program, invest in young people who are very socially isolated. We take them on uh, field trips that we call explorations across the entire city of Chicago. We expose them to different careers. We might go to Google to learn about the tech industry. We expose them to art. We might make pottery together. We expose them to new foods. So instead of having, you know, um, hoagies or pizza or Italian beef, we're going to be having like Indian food or we're going to have Thai food. Ethiopian food, things that that change up their their schema for what what delicious is, what flavorful is. Um, And then we also used recreation, just moving your body in new ways, um, experiencing the lake, um, experiencing ice skating, all of those sorts of things, really just shake things up. We're trying to expose young people to as many opportunities as possible because we know that planting these seeds can lead to all different directions. We're trying to plant as many seeds as possible. Like a lot of my fellow millennials and members of Gen Z, I connect with community a lot online, whether it be chatting with fandom communities or connecting with other writers and podcasters. While I get a lot of joy out of my online connections, being on social media can also feel as if I'm swimming through a pool of negativity. I've witnessed people get bullied mercilessly for sharing their morning coffee routine or for how their body looks. And one time I saw a woman get bullied for hours about the type of butter she used in her cookies. Beats Van Leer is a millennial too, and he's experienced this as well. Uh, of course, you know, like like I play Call of Duty every now and then, right? I go online, I hear the worst things. I hear the most racist, like homophobic, all sorts of stuff on, on that platform. And I know young folks and people my age are playing it every day, right? I'm just like, okay, to have this constant deluge of stuff, it's going to inform your behavior in some capacity. Um, But then again, it's a way to have fun when you don't have to go outside. You don't have to interact with people. You can still have interactions. So um, definitely a double-edged sword that we can't control. It's not really something that policy change will affect. It's just, it's a living organism itself. Dorothy brought up another issue that can stifle attempts to build community how we perceive each other, and how that's molded by the media. I have three millennials. I have two boys and a, and, a, and a girl. And I really worry, you know, I really worry about where they are today and where we are today in this country and where we are going, which again is why I circle back to the importance of journalists. The news has always been kind of fear-based, right? You, you, you go on WGN, you go on the ABC, you're going to see um, really scary stories about people being shot, about um, people being kidnapped, all sorts of these things. That's always kind of been the case. Those things sell newspapers, they sell TV. But the things that's changed is the internet and social media. 
where you can get inundated in that. Before you had to turn on the TV at a certain time to hear this news. Now you can see one post and you're talking about millions of people can see that story. So how can you break a narrative about North Lawndale being violent when every news source you see to millions of people says that it's it's violent, that all, there's only murder there, that it's very dangerous, right? Um, so we have to change these narratives, but it's very difficult when the narratives are so much bigger than they were before. And when folks are afraid, that means they're afraid to leave their neighborhood. They're afraid to get to know new people. They're afraid to take the train. We're seeing this issue a lot with our younger generation right now with the youth we work with. I feel like there is a negativity bias because psychologically humans are more attracted. Like they, we focus more on negative things than positive things for survival instinct. But I do also think news and entertainment have become conflated in a big way where it's like, not only with, you know, news shows now having a comedic bent, like the daily show or John Oliver or Samantha B, uh, but also just like Fox news has become sensational. You know, people are like, it's like the shock jock equivalent of getting your information. So I think, it's hard to kind of divorce the two these days in terms of like, is my entertainment like flashy enough or like, is my news flashy enough rather? Is there a way to make things better? For me, it's investment, investing in young people. Um, I've, I've mentored and taught young journalists through the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. I do it now formally as a adjunct professor at Columbia College Chicago. It is in order, in order for us as a community, as, as a people, as a country to move forward, it's really important to understand where we've been, right? We, we need to draw from the past, be mindful of the present as we forge ahead into the future. And so for me, I know I am privileged. I am if I've had any, if I've had any success in my career, it's in great part due to the people who came before me that have either busted through through those doors, chipped away at that wall, so that I could move further than they could. So for me, it's the same thing. It is about investing my time with young people so that they understand uh, and appreciate where they are. And it's not easy because they've got a lot of work to do as well, but they're, they, they're, they will be um, sure-footed if I am there to teach them, to mentor them, to guide them, to support them. Um, I have many people throughout my whole career, including now, that have put me on their figurative shoulders and helped me see farther than I ever could on my own two feet and reach higher than I ever could on my own two feet. It is my responsibility to do the same for others. Um, I think it's important we tell the stories of the work that's being done in the community. You know, I think it's important that we, we go out of our way. Uh, there are so many more positive stories out there. Uh, and, you know, as, as a television working for a TV station, you know, we have a limited amount of time. So, you know, we don't tell those stories. But I think it is important um, that we continue to fight to get those stories on the air. You know, there is so much good going on in the community. You know, when you see something that happened like in downtown Chicago, uh, you know, with all this, the, the young teenagers, the young people who came down and created all the chaos, 
And then literally the following day, there were so many community organizations that stood up and said, hey, you know, come here and play. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to approach this. This is, you know, this is, this, these are the answers. You know, we're going to, you know, we have a list and we have a solution. And I saw the news media really telling those stories. And that is the sort of thing that we need to do so that, so we inform, we continue to inform the community because there's somebody sitting at home, some parents sitting at home saying, wow, you know, I don't want my son, my daughter to go downtown. And then they go, well, wait a minute. There's this community group that's right in my neighborhood. I think that's how you mobilize the community by telling the community's stories. I think also as a millennial, I think I'm the last generation that kind of straddles before the internet and after. And I do think these days, and especially since the pandemic, I'm like more and more drawn to in-person contact versus just like having these conversations online. And like, I know technology has done so many things to mobilize groups and bring people together and signal boost important things and amplify causes. But I do think also like meeting physically and, and finding those local groups, like Dorothy was saying, to connect with and hearing people's stories in person sort of impacts in a way that reading, you know, a blurb on your phone never will. Sure, it's critical for our young people to um, have experiences outside their neighborhood and meet new people, period. You know, I I think we we like to visualize um, America as a place where like, you can be anything you want, right? And you know, all your dreams can come true. But honestly, as a young person, you're very impressionable, right? So if the only people you know are are like are working at a fast food restaurant or they're in a CNA um, or they're yeah an MC athlete those are the things you're going to want to be because you want to be like the people who are around you and so you need to be exposed to new industries and new people so you can even have this spark of imagination like oh I didn't know electricians work was so cool or like oh I didn't even think about being an engineer and so you need to have those conversations. We've talked a lot about how creating and sustaining communities can be a challenge today. That's not the whole story though. Community is always changing, and younger generations are revolutionizing the concept in positive ways. Yeah, I think uh, older folks often think, uh, teenagers especially, are lazy. I would argue every older generation thinks about that, about every single other younger generation. I know my parents are like, oh, you millennials are so lazy, right? Um, I think this generation, especially these teenagers, have gone through more than any other previous generation in some time living through the pandemic, surviving through, trying to graduate high school. Oh my gosh, right? So many stressors we haven't even ever seen. And also having social media be such a visceral force, again, for good and for bad. It takes a lot of stamina to go through that and still live your day and be positive, right? And um, we are seeing higher suicide rates. We are seeing huge depression rates, not just because we're learning better ways to diagnose it, but also because um, there's just been so much. Um, so I don't see this generation as being lazy. I see them as being the most resilient. And uh, we need to use that as an asset for us and also kind of have trauma-informed care when we approach these young folks so we know how to deal with things when they pop off because they have a lot of good reasons to pop off. I resonated a lot with what Hugo said about um, just paying homage to the people who've come before you because um, doing activism and seeing so many people might age just just like mobilizing and just coming together and 
even now with like the age of the internet, so much of my journey at the beginning stages of my activism journey were through social media. And because of that, um, because of that, we were able to create groups, um, like community groups, like healing sessions in person all around LA. And I, I, um, it's interesting being in this age where, um, so many of my friends who are like in their early twenties and college and just like, just like, this is what's going on in the world. And want just, there's no filter. There's no, like, it's just like, what can we do? How can we do it? It's, it's interesting seeing the ways that we've gone about things and comparing it to the way that my parents who were raised in the Philippines and under martial law and knowing that my parents actually gave me advice on activism because in the Philippines it was a very dictate it was a dictatorship when they were growing up and they were the people who were on the streets um, um marching against martial law and so talking to them generationally and learning from each other too because they the way that they see America is not the way I see America so it's just interesting um um, learning in that way and learning from other young people and just there's this like fiery bravery that I've seen from people who are in college just going out there which I really admire so do you have any tips for now isolated millennials like me and other people who just want to be more engaged with their community yeah I think it does involve leaving ideally I think it involves getting to know people for the sake of getting to know them and that is a, a trend that I think even the past few generations have gotten worse at. We go to networking events, we go to business meetings, and we meet people because we they have value, right? It's a transactional relationship. You might get me a job, you might get me money someday, you might get me some kind of asset. Instead of just getting to know Rachel for the sake of getting to know Rachel and building, we need to go back to the organics. Just get to know people, say hi to your neighbor, make eye contact, do small talk, which is completely being lost. We're losing that skill set because it's so much easier instead of sitting and talking to someone you don't know to just go on your cell phone and talk to someone you do, right? Um, it's going to take work and it's going to take time, but that's how you build community. That's Nathaniel Beats Van Leer of My Block, My Hood, My City in Chicago. We'd like to thank him for being our expert guest. I'm also so grateful for our panel guests, Dorothy Tucker, Hugo Balta, Aparna Nancherla, and Kim Syrah. Our theme music is by Zafra other episodes featuring this panel. We're talking mental health and friendship. This episode was produced by Mallory Samara and me, Lauren Berry. Myron Kaplan is Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review. You can listen to It's Generational on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcast.